millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. By the end of the week, I'd been on MSNBC, Fox News, NPR. I felt like people thought I didn't care whether my son lived or died. And I, I wanted to correct that misperception. Special Ed has morphed into a bureaucratic monster that now consumes over 25% of the total K-12 budget in America. Is that the right balance? No one's even asking the question. Without some form of meaningful education, you're screwed. You have to be trained and passionate about something, but the idea that you can only get that training by going hopelessly into debt, that's a very dangerous proposition. What if we had a show about solutions? Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Boring. <laughs> yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, we're looking back at some of the best moments of 2015 on this, I think it's 32nd show we've done so far. Yeah, so we're, this is, we're doing the, uh, the grand old tradition of the wrap-up show. We've covered so many things, Richard, since starting the podcast early this year. You know, we've talked a lot about free-range kids and what's going on in college campuses, confirmation bias, but also about ideas like carbon capture and storage and a whole lot of other things. Elsewhere, though, it's been a year of fear with rising worries about terrorism and increasingly harsh rhetoric on the campaign trail. So, to me, a really good year to launch a show that's positive. Right. I mean, our whole idea from the get-go was two people who come from somewhat different, not really ends of the spectrum. We're both pretty much centerists, but we're at different sides of the center. And that you come together and instead of demonizing ideas you don't like or people that you disagree with, trying to find some common ground, looking at different problems and issues and hashing out sort of a common sense approach that should get past that sort of partisan one-upmanship. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We've had a few disagreements, Jim, about putting this show together because for me, one of the most powerful themes is, is trust and freedom. I'm more than a little bit troubled by the rise of Donald Trump on the right. Well, yes, me too. I mean, but remember, so are most Republicans. I mean, he's actively opposed by the majority of Republicans. So I think I think there's plenty to worry about on both sides there. So let's start with someone we thoroughly agree with. Philip K. Howard has been a campaigner for simpler laws and streamlined government. 
For a long time, Philip Howard has been an advocate for getting rid of some of the red tape and the tangled mess of the way a lot of our government bureaucracies work today. In his latest book, The Rule of Nobody, he argues for laws and regulations that are more about principles and goals and not micromanagement. And I think he's got some really interesting ideas for how we could change the way that, that government works and to make it work better. I think that the political debate is almost entirely in the wrong dimension. It's not a question of big government versus deregulation. In an increasingly crowded, interdependent world, our freedom is enhanced if someone makes sure the air is clean, the toys don't have mm-hmm. lead paint on them, they're not terrorists coming in the airports, you know. So we need government. But the question is how it delivers those services. And so what I'm arguing is that law should be much more like the Constitution, 10 pages, general principles, goals, not like thousands of OSHA rules. You say that all laws should have sunset provisions. Explain what a sunset provision is. Well, you know, laws, like all life choices, have unintended consequences and priorities change in life and such. And so it's incredibly important that laws and regulations periodically expire not so that we necessarily get rid of them, but so we can reevaluate whether they're working as intended and, and are still high priorities. Uh, farm subsidies from the New Deal. It has been 75 years since any farmer was starving. We're still spending $15 billion a year to subsidize mainly corporate farmers. That's one that actually should be just be scrapped. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, special education, really important law passed in 1975 because before then we locked up special needs kids in horrible places like Willowbrook. Special ed has morphed into a bureaucratic monster that now consumes over 25% of the total K-12 budget in America. There's almost nothing for early education or for gifted children. Is that the right balance? No one's even asking the question. Yeah, recently we had uh, Elizabeth Green on this show, and she's written a book called uh, Building a Better Teacher. And it was about how we can improve the quality of teaching in America. And one of her big frustrations was also a huge amount of governance and a confusion about where the rules are coming from. So that's part of this problem. Oh, completely. I mean, bureaucracy can't teach. Let's just get there. What bureaucracy does is it suffocates all the things that are good for teaching. So if if you had one reform that would make schools better, it would be basically take away all the rules and and let people be accountable. Because then different school schools could do things in different ways. They could invent. They could innovate. Um, and, you know, there should be a general principle of fair treatment of students. And, you know, there, there are a lot of principles you can have that are perfectly fair. But fundamentally, teachers need to be able to own their classrooms. And principals need to be able to own their schools and be accountable to their constituents, which include not only people up the chain of command in schools, but also the parents. One parent who was on our show during the summer was Lenore Skenazy, founder of Free Range Kids. Yeah, Lenore is a journalist who kind of hit the big time in terms of uh, public profile when she wrote a column about letting her nine-year-old son ride the subway in New York. And her movement began after the outcry over what she wrote. So what what really transpired is that our son was asking me and my husband if we would let him, if we would take him someplace he had never been before and let him find his own way home by public transportation, subway and bus. And we discussed it, my husband and I, and we thought we're on the subways all the time. They are crowded. I think crowded means safe, safety in numbers. They are, you know, vaguely efficient. Okay, they're a little dirty. You know, sometimes you see a rat, but they're not 
dangerous. And my son was very familiar with them because that's how we get around in New York. And so I thought of it as pretty much the equivalent of lending your kid in the suburbs ride his bike to the library, except it's New York City. So I said, okay. And when I brought him for that fateful day uh, to the train, I, I brought him to the subway stop at Bloomingdale's, which is, you know, Bloomingdale's. It's, this it's is a, on it's, Manhattan's Upper East Side. It's on Manhattan's Upper East Side. It's a, you know, it's a, it's an expensive zip code. It's filled with shoppers. It was a sunny Sunday afternoon. And, um, and he'd been on the subway line many times before. And so he had just had to take it a couple of stops down and then get out and then take this really slow bus that goes across town. And I felt he was capable of it. And, and he was. And so, um, you know, I didn't put him on the subway at three in the morning. It wasn't the South Bronx. It wasn't China where he doesn't speak the language. It was something that he was familiar with. And, and what was the reaction when you wrote that <laughs> right. column that and said, great. this is what I did? This is what I did. Um, my, my, my son says he's responsible for my entire career, which is sort of true. <laughs> um, but a month and a half after that, I wrote this column. And uh, that night the phone rang. And it was, first of all, it was the Howard Stern show, which I was like, you know, I, I crossed my legs and put on a robe. I'm like, what are you calling me for? Oh, my God. You know, I'm I'm really old and I'm married. And I'm straight. And I, you know, I just, uh, you know, you're not even in my fantasies, Howard. But it didn't matter. He, uh, uh, in the end, he didn't have me on. But the, the next phone call was the Today Show. And, um, you know, it was like a Kardashian moment. Howard and the Today Show both wanted me. Uh, and uh, once I was on the Today Show... That just opened the floodgates of the media. And by, by the end of the week, I'd been on MSNBC, Fox News, NPR. And that's when I started my blog because I, I felt like people thought I didn't care whether my son lived or died. And I, I wanted to correct that misperception. And, and so um, the blog originally said that we believe in helmets, car seats, seat belts. Mouth guards. If your wives had invited me to the baby shower, the gift I always bring to a baby shower is a fire extinguisher. So I, I believe in safety. I just don't believe our kids need a security detail every time they leave the house. Yeah, you've said you feel like our kids these days are wrapped in bubble wrap. Helicopter parenting, whatever it is, it's it's a common phenomenon that seems to be around the world now. And this is just originally I thought I was pushing back against helicopter parenting. Gradually I realized it's if entire countries are going crazy like this with fear and and uh, like Rhode Island even proposed a law that would not allow a child to get off a school bus before seventh grade without an adult waiting at the school bus stop to chaperone them home. That's not helicopter parenting. That is a culture gone crazy with fear that believes it can control every single circumstance and every single second of a child's life. And so I'm not saying parents, whoa, you guys are nuts. I'm saying Culture, whoa, you're nuts. Lenore Skenazy, Google her blog at Free Range Kids. And you can also find out more about all of our guests on our website, How Do We Fix It? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Dot me. One theme of our shows this year is to kind of fight back against fear and and the desire to construct a lot of rules and requirements around every eventuality. Yeah, Donald Trump, as we were talking about earlier in the show, is, is tapped into the fear of others, uh, those who we don't know much about and who might be we might be suspicious of. Trump wants walls, bans, and barriers, as do a bunch of other politicians. But what would be the economic costs of imposing these? Peter Coy from Bloomberg Businessweek was on, and he made a very good case, I think, for why relatively uh, free transfer of people over borders is important, why free trade is important. And we need to be careful about this kind of nativist backlash. Of course, we need appropriate security. But if you shut down the uh, the movement of people and, and, and goods, economies suffer. One of the prizes, one of the treasures of democracy is freedom of thought, freedom of action, freedom of, of movement, and that in uh, putting up walls, we actually lose what we treasure the most, and we actually could cause more harm. So I spoke to Ellie Berman. He's a terrorism expert and an economist. He said, look, terrorists thrive on distance. They benefit when, say, the Muslims living in Paris become more alienated from the Catholics and Protestants and the secular people of Paris. In fact, that's one of the things they're trying to accomplish with these attacks. And if you you go along and and you end up playing into their hands by creating deeper and deeper divisions. I I know your article is about Europe, but this has pretty profound implications in this country, doesn't it? It sure does. And, you know, you mentioned Donald Trump. To me, the idea of sealing America off, sending 11 or 12 million undocumented out of the U.S. and then maybe inviting them back, maybe not, it would really tear at the fabric of the U.S. Peter Coy of Bloomberg Businessweek. So, Richard, one thing that I've really been thinking about a lot and concerned about, we've hit on it in a number of shows, is this growing atmosphere of intolerance on college campuses. The very people who think they're being super tolerant are actually you know, banning speakers, shouting down ideas they don't believe with, shouting down their own professors and demanding safe spaces and trigger warnings so they never have to confront an uncomfortable idea. Yeah, when you first brought this problem to me, I thought that you were overemphasizing it a bit too much. And I don't think I'm quite as alarmed as you are, but certainly you've made a good case. Well, I'm alarmed because these are the people who are going to be running the country in a few years. And if and if they can't handle a discussion with somebody from a different background or someone who disagrees with them in college of all places. Imagine how they're going to behave once they're running the institutions of our country. Hara Morano of Psychology Today has been reporting on this for years, and she told us... What you have here is a whole generation of middle-class and upper-middle-class students who have been overprotected by their parents. So they are hypersensitive to any slight. And the result is it's bred a culture of victimhood. And they celebrate their victimhood. How do they celebrate their victimhood? They have absolutely no qualms about 
declaring their need for safe spaces or telling their professors and administrators that they've overstepped their bounds. Hara Morano of Psychology Today. Greg Lukianoff co-wrote the pivotal article um, about this issue in the September issue of the Atlantic Monthly Magazine, The Coddling of the American Mind. Greg runs the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, which supports free speech on campus. Yeah, he says there's been an alarming rise in demands for t- trigger warnings and cases where students expect the college administrators to protect them from all kinds of, of ideas or emotions that they might not be comfortable with. So Jim asked Greg, how big is this problem? Well, I'm a First Amendment lawyer, and I've been doing this for 15 years. And I have to say it's been pretty bad and pretty ridiculous for a long time when it comes to the uh, speech policing on college campuses. It's much worse than people think. And it was much worse than even I thought coming from the ACLU and from a free speech background. I was still routinely shocked at how easy it is to get in trouble on the modern campus. But the thing that's changed in the past two years is that for the most part, it's been out-of-control administrators that have been enforcing sort of like unbelievably strict speech uh, codes. Uh, but in the past two years, I'm seeing a lot more, more of the speech policing being taken on by the students themselves. And that's a very disturbing trend. Let, give me a couple of examples, Greg, of how this has changed literally in the last two years. Sure. Um, well, definitely one of the things that really first clued us in was the rise of sort of what, what we refer to at FIRE as disinvitation season, um, where <laughs> suddenly there was just this spike of, of, of movements to get uh, speakers students didn't like um, uh, d- disinvited from speaking there. And this included even people like the like Christine Lagarde, who was, who was head of the IMF, um, you know, very accomplished woman if there ever was one, or the former uh, uh, chancellor of Berkeley. Um, there was a disinvitation push against him. And it really, you know, came to a head when they tried to disinvite Bill Maher from speaking at UC Berkeley on the day uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the free speech movement. Yeah, because some of these speakers that have been disinvited in the past were well-known conservatives, but Bill Maher certainly doesn't figure figure in that category. He's a well-known talk show liberal. Exactly. And then there's there's a certain sadness to that. I have to say that people kind of didn't notice it until it, <laughs> until it being a series of famous liberals getting disinvited. But nonetheless, you know, it, it is more newsworthy when it ends up being even a comedian, you know, facing a disinvitation push. Now, when we talk about the, this, the rise of um, students pushing back, um, mm-hmm. there's a few different elements. I'd love you to explain them. One is the concept of microaggressions. What, sure. what is a microaggression? And microaggressions are are unconscious, uh, usually unconscious slights that you make that are either racist or sexist. Those are generally the two categories. So, for example, um, you know, really emphasizing the fact that a that an African-American speaker is articulate would be your sort sort of your classic microaggression, because it's sort of implicitly insulting. It's implying that that's kind of weird. Um, So that's that's the microaggression that I think everyone understands. Now, the other phrase you've mentioned is trigger warnings. What what are they? Trigger warnings are ver- usually verbal warnings that you place uh, in front of any material that a student might find upsetting or quote unquote triggering. Um, so, and so it's kind of like a warning label for speech. It's like a warning label for speech. But the problem is the categories for what require trigger warnings just get bigger and bigger. And even though they usually use PTSD to justify um, trigger warnings, it's uh, increasingly students who have no PTSD at all saying, I just don't want to hear about, for example, um, the law of sexual assault at Harvard Law School. 
One thing that made a lot of news was at Columbia, a series of students wrote um, to the president saying that uh, Ovid's metamorphosis required a trigger warning because uh, it includes sexual violence and it includes racism and sexism. Yeah, and and almost every major work of literature involves some kind of conflict or trauma. And one, would, one would hope. <laughs> you, know, you don't have a lot of drama without that. So I'm really intrigued by this idea that everyone feels they need protection right. from things that we used to feel were just part of, of culture, that we're able to talk about really bad things. That was Greg Lukianoff from Episode 17. With so many problems on campuses, you know, we started to wonder, are we placing too much value on the traditional four-year college degree? Is there too much dogma about the idea that the only way to get ahead in our society is to go to a four-year college? Mike Rowe, who's well-known as the host and producer of Dirty Jobs and then Somebody's Got to Do It on CNN, is an expert on blue-collar skilled jobs, right. the skilled trades. And I had worked with Mike some when I used to be editor of Popular Mechanics magazine. And he says young people do need skills, they do need an education, but not necessarily a four-year college. Without some form of meaningful education, you're screwed. You have to be trained and passionate about something, ideally some skill that's actually in demand. But the idea that you can only get that training by going hopelessly into debt and exiting the halls of higher education with a sheepskin, that's a very dangerous proposition. Well, 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 tell us why that proposition is flawed. Because there are no guarantees at all about what your college degree is actually going to net out. On the other hand, we do have a lot of very hard data about the constants in the equation, like debt, for instance. <laughs> we, we know exactly how much it costs to go to Duke for four years. We know exactly how difficult it is to pay that money back over time, assuming you can even find work in your chosen field. So the promise of the most expensive form of education is vague. So the conversation I think we should be having does involve a measure of cost-benefit, debt, and most importantly, the individual understanding of what you're going to do with the tool. And that ultimately is what education is, right? It's just a tool. It won't hurt you if you don't know what to do with it, assuming you can afford it, but it makes so much more sense to acquire it when you have at least some idea of how you might wield the weapon, as it were. Uh, everybody I've talked to is talking about the struggles to recruit in skilled labor. Right. And one thing I think that people often underestimate is the costs of that college degree. You know, a lot of people are getting all this debt. You know, they're getting halfway through. They've got some credits and then they just can't keep going. So they've got all the debt and they don't have the degree. They've got the worst of both worlds. Yeah, it's like catching a falling knife. Um, once you're invested, what are you going to do? You know, the pressure to finish becomes exponential. There, there's opportunity for certain, but I don't know how much opportunity there really is right now, specifically for a liberal arts degree. Mike says a lecture is, is not going to fix anything, but... I think we have to think twice about what it is we're most impressed with in the wide world of work. And if we're not blown away in 2015 by the fact that the lights still come on when we flick the switch or the crap goes away when we flush the toilet, 
if the, if those things don't still strike us as miraculous, then I think that's kind of where the problem starts. I, I could agree with you more. Our society needs to do more to celebrate that kind of work and, and how much we all depend on it. My granddad was heroic in his day. He only went to the seventh grade, but by the time he was 30, master electrician and master plumber. And from then on, he just basically owned the world of the skilled trades. And today, um, he'd be Mr. Cellophane. You'd see right through him. And Mr. Cellophane labors mostly in quiet, unfortunate anonymity. That's a problem. So that's Mike Rowe from CNN. Somebody's got to do it in episode 18. Another problem with education is how we train teachers. Yeah, Elizabeth Green was one of our first guests on How Do We Fix It? Really interesting one for me because my wife has been a, a teacher for quite a few years, and I've seen a lot of these issues uh, kind of through her eyes. Elizabeth talked about the misconceptions parents and politicians have about education and how teachers teach. She went to Japan doing research for her book, Building a Better Teacher, and Elizabeth looked at the successful teaching methods in Japan and, and the fact that they learned those methods from American education reformers. I think, I think every teacher who gets excellent does it by deliberately finding the opportunities to learn. What do I do in the moment to make sure that this one boy is going to be able to participate in class in a productive way that will help him learn and everyone else learn at the same time? Tell us about uh, Akiko Takahashi. Hope I got that right. Yes. Uh, a Japanese teacher who you met, who was inspired by great American ideas, taught them in Japan with a considerable amount of success, but was shocked when he came to the U.S. What kind of things was he teaching that he learned from American education reformers? So one of the things about our country is that we are one of the world's best producers of education ideas, but we're some of the worst implementers of those ideas. So Akihiko Takahashi is a teacher who entered the profession in Japan at a time of change for especially math teaching in Japan. Um, teachers were starting to think about uh, how can we help students better understand the math so that we're not just assigning them a bunch of problems to practice, but actually getting them to think. Elizabeth Green on episode 17. Uh, the book is called Building a Better Teacher. One of the things that really struck me in Elizabeth Green's take was something I've seen through my wife's eyes as a teacher. There's no lonelier profession than being a teacher in America where you're standing up in front of this classroom of kids, but you don't have that much time to really work with your fellow teachers or to learn from them. Teachers are really thrown in there and very much on their own. And I think that needs to change. From the classroom to Washington, D.C., one of the big scandals in Washington is the revolving door. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that came up this year is Attorney General Eric Holder left after six years in the position and went right back to the high-powered Wall Street law firm he'd left. You know, we don't know how much he's making. We can assume he got a nice big bump from having you know served in the government all this time. This is happening way too much. People do a stint in government, and then they get an extra big payday when they go back to the private sector. Yeah, Jim, and one of the biggest criticisms of Holder and the Justice Department during his six years was that not a single top Wall Street banker went to jail for the, for the financial meltdown. We asked law professor Glenn Reynolds from the University of Tennessee, who's the founder of the influential Instapundent blog, to come on our show and talk about a proposal he has 
for what he calls the revolving door surtax. There are all kinds of laws and, and designed to limit influence peddling, and they've all been basically complete failures. So I was trying to think what would work. And I said, well, what part of the federal government are people actually afraid of? What part has teeth? And that led me to the IRS. And I started thinking uh, it was actually occasioned by Elizabeth Warren complaining about uh, what she called the Wall Street shuffle of people going from regulators to you know, places like Goldman Sachs and back and forth. Uh, and I said, well, you know, when you hire somebody who's worked in the government to work for your big corporation or lobby group or whatever – uh, you're hiring them not just for sort of who they are, but for what they know and who they know. And those are all connections they've made while they work for the government. So it seems only fair for the government to, to share in those profits somehow. On the surtax, just walk me through a little bit more how you think it should work. What rate, ideally, should the surtax be? Uh, so my proposal is a surtax, which is it's a tax that goes on top of whatever your regular income tax is. And you know, we could haggle about the rates. I, I proposed 50%. I could be <laughs> convinced to go higher. Uh, but uh, the way it would work is you leave the government. Say you've been a fairly senior government executive. You made uh, a, a good government salary, uh, say $100,000 a year. Uh, you go to a place uh, outside the government where you're making $500,000 a year. Uh, 50% of the difference between your government salary and your private salary just is taken right off the top as a surtax. So you would pay $200,000 in that, and then you'd pay regular income tax on the remaining 300000 just like everyone else. It's only fair for the government to sort of claw some of that back. And what should be the trigger for this? For instance, if you went to out of the government to a job that didn't make you a huge amount of money, should you be affected? No. Well, if say, say you made $100,000 in the government and you went to another job that paid you $100,000, uh, the surtax wouldn't apply because it only applies to the difference between the two salaries. And if there's no difference, there's no surtax. How big is this problem of the revolving door? Well, it's pretty big. We hear about it mostly in the context of political appointees. But there are huge numbers of people in the senior civil service who do the same thing. And, you know, I don't want to throw stones Again, you leave a government agency, you more than double your salary, and you're hired by somebody to basically address the regulations that you were enacting when you worked for the agency. And, and that's problematic uh, in two ways. Uh, the easy way that it's problematic is that uh, when you get out, you're basically rewarded for creating complicated regulations because the more complicated the regulations you create while you're in the government are, the more people need to hire you to understand them when you get out. But the even more problematic part of this is that when you are in the government and thinking about retiring and moving to a more lucrative position outside, uh, you also kind of have the incentive not to uh, foul your nest, not to make people outside the government dislike you enough that they won't want to hire you when you get out. Uh, so there's a real incentive to be friendly to the industries that you're regulating and not to push them too hard. You may do a lot of stuff for show to play in the news or to please your superiors, but uh, when push comes to shove, you're probably going to pull your punches uh, on the stuff that really matters to these constituency groups. That point Glenn Reynolds was making on episode 10 of How Do We Fix It goes back to what Philip K. Howard was saying at the top of the show, that so many laws are way too complicated. They're often hundreds of pages long and try to spell out in minute detail or, or micromanaging every problem that they try to deal with. 
So that's just a very small sampling of uh, of some of the people we've had on this year. But Richard, for me, it's been a really fantastic experience getting together, bringing these brilliant people in to give us some of their best ideas and then hashing out what we think. I hope the, the listeners are enjoying coming along for the ride. Yeah, I, I, I've really learned a lot from from our guests and changed my views on a few things, too. Yeah, it's actually it's part of the point of the show. Well, and one of your original ideas was to, to call the show Change My Mind. So we've, you know, hopefully we're changing minds and open to having our minds changed. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, uh, our digital engineer. Denise Barbarita here at... Mono Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. And the music is by Lou Stravinsky. How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for businesses and nonprofits. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.